is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Look, on this program at farming conferences around Australia, you've heard many stories about how farmers should be price makers, not price takers. But how do you cut out the middleman and start marketing your own produce? Or is it even worth it? Well, today we're going to that extreme. You're going to hear from farmers that have cut out the middlemen and exporting their own shipment of grain. We're loading the ship today uh, out of Geelong. Uh, we're using, obviously, the Reardon facility this time to uh, help work through all of the complexities of it. Uh, it's certainly been a, a learning curve outside of the normal farming practices, dealing with shipping lines and uh, demurrage and all these other potential issues that could increase the overall cost of it. But uh, the support we've had from the farmer network has been amazing. Exporting a shipload of grain. Is it possible? How does it work? All of those questions and more answered today on the program. Would love to know what you think about that. You can call us 1300 or text 0467 We'll head to the Australian Dairy Conference, which is on in Hobart this week. We'll go to Wodonga, where a factory is closing that has been producing uh, fake meat or meat substitute produ- uh, products. We'll go into all of that and more. We'd love you to be involved right now, though. Let's get some rural news with Angus Furley. G'day, Angus. G'day, Was There's growing concern in the prawn industry after the detection of a highly contagious disease at a Clarence Valley facility this week. White spot disease does not pose a threat to human health, but is deadly to crustaceans and has devastated prawn farms in southeast Queensland. The disease was also found at a different facility near Yamba last August. The Department of Primary Industries is investigating, but the Australian Prawn Farming Association's Kim Hooper says more action is needed. But absolutely devastating to the prawn farm industry, and not just not just um, farms, but wild caught as well. The biosecurity, you know, we're absolutely reeling that this keeps happening, and state and federal governments do not learn when it comes to biosecurity. And we now see it's not only our farms and people that are currently paying the price, but other businesses in the northern New South region as well. I mean, the first intention must be to try and eradicate and not send it all over Australia. And yesterday we were advised that all raw, uncooked prawns and worms um, cannot be moved outside of the immediate area, which is a start, but it's a way too smaller area. And the time taken to get comprehensive surveillance going is causing a lot of stress and anxiety, as you can imagine. The Victorian Farmers Federation is calling for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan report card to be more detailed. Earlier this week, the MDBA released its ninth update, which stated only minor improvements had been made in the past month and that important elements of the plan are at risk or are unlikely to be achieved by the June 2024 deadline. BFF Border Council Chairman Andrew Lay says he'd like to see a focus on the social impacts of the plan too. There's been no report card done on the socio-economics of what the ramifications are taking water out of the basin off to communities as irrigators. So we're pretty upset about that. It's just a pure about the number, not about the outcomes of um, what's been achieved environmentally with um, what they've got has done for the environment. We've got to go a bit further with these report cards. More than 80 graziers and landholders from across western New South Wales gathered in Broken Hill yesterday to voice their concerns about mandatory electronic livestock tagging. Sheep and goat producers will have until 2027 to comply with the measure, 
put forward following an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in Bali last year. Group Director of Livestock Systems at the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, Dougal Gordon, says while it will create an additional cost, it will be subsidised. Absolutely there is a cost involved. We can't ignore that. Um, we're highly cognizant that this is going to have an impost on our industry. We've actually made it quite clear to industry that we will provide government assistance and there will be both New South Wales and Commonwealth government assistance provided and some of those announcements have already been made both at a Commonwealth and a New South Wales government level. So in terms of some of those costs, from a producer perspective, tags is the big one. And they're an ongoing cost every year, but they will decline um, over time. We're looking to have a national tag tender. Now, that national tag tender um, will use market forces and competitive pressures to reduce that market price for, um, for for tags as best we possibly can. And let's head to the Wide Bay region of Queensland, where a conveyor belt the length of five Olympic swimming pools is set to unlock export opportunities. Construction is underway on a $21 million project to boost Queensland's exports of minerals and agricultural products at the port of Bundaberg. David Quinn, the Chief Executive of Sugar Terminals Limited, says the project will allow for the export of a broader range of commodities. The storage received on export of raw sugar remains our priority. That's what we do principally. However, the opportunity we see is that we have got assets here, world-class assets, that we can use to diversify. And therefore, as a result, we're keen to utilise them for that purpose. We don't want to compromise our offering to the sugar industry, but there's many opportunities, we think, in this region that we can explore and, as I say, it provides that opportunity for local producers to export to the world. And in the middle of the wet season and with the country looking so green across the top end, you wouldn't think the time is right to do any burning. But at Kakadu National Park, rangers and traditional owners have been busy burning country over the past few weeks. Here's senior ranger and traditional owner Joe Markham talking through the process. Uh, yes, so this is one of our fire breaks uh, that we use to protect the ranger station and we're using wet season burning because this particular area had a lot of hot fires go through it uh, so it was sparse and the fires weren't continuing through so we've saved the fuel and now we're going to use the wet season burn to to reduce it and protect our assets and was that's it for rural news thanks very much for that angus angus fairly there with rural news for you already a text in on the line on 0467 842 722 from mick in bal ranald he says g'day warwick Weather report here from hellsgate feedlot on the western edge of the hay plains near bal ranald where it's 51 degrees on the bitumen. It's a bit hot, says Mick. Too right, Mick. Thank you for that text and that weather report anyway. It is a warm one today, so I hope wherever you are, you're looking after yourself and uh, getting that water if you need. You're listening to the Country Hour. Well, let's have a talk about what's heading overseas right now because, get this, two farmers have joined forces to put together an export a 35,000-tonne bulk shipment of milling wheat to Oman in what could be a first for the industry. Western Victorian grain grower Andrew Wiedemann and his Western Australian counterpart Barry Large have started the company LW Investments Australia to export grain, including their own, directly from farmers to end users. The ship is being loaded at the port of Geelong today and will sail for Oman next week. Andrew Wiedemann says end users like Oman Flour Mills want to buy directly from growers. We've been talking to Oman Flour Mills for quite some time. They have been purchasing wheat from Australia 
previously and barley, uh, but they have been talking about trying to connect directly with farmers, directly with grain coming off their farm uh, and basically ending up uh, at their uh, facility over in Amman. And a long time spent lining up the logistics, but now it's it's all happening. Yes, look, it is. Yeah, we're loading the ship today uh, out of Geelong. Uh, we're using, obviously, the Reardon facility this time to uh, help work through all of the complexities of it. Uh, it's certainly been a, a learning curve outside of the normal farming practices, dealing with shipping lines and uh, demurrage and all these other potential issues that could increase the overall cost of it. But uh, the support we've had from the farmer network has been amazing. I wanted to ask how you as a farmer have, have sourced 35,000 tonnes of wheat. Some of it's your own, but, but where'd you get the rest? Yeah, so look, it's all been sourced through um, other farmers from the top end of the Mallee all the way down to uh, almost the Southern Divide. Uh, we've had a lot of grain that we've unfortunately not been able to take because of the quality of the season, but there's certainly been those farmers that have been fortunate enough to have that good quality grain, we've been able to buy that at a reasonable price in the marketplace. And, uh, yeah, it's just sort of connecting, I suppose, the dots. And, you know, long-term, uh, you know, our hope and our passion is to try and make sure that those farmers that want to know more about where their product ends up uh, are involved in this process because uh, I think, you know, traditionally a lot of farmers have tipped it to a bulk handler or to a local grain store and never really thought about where their grain ends up. But in this case, it's actually meeting those people that are using it and, and listening to their story too about why they're trying to work more closely with the uh, production end rather than through the middleman. What are the logistics for loading? Have you got that grain accumulated at port or is it being trucked down from on-farm storage? Yeah, so look, the shipment is just short of 35,000 tonnes. We've got close to 20,000 tonnes already accumulated uh, close to the wharf. Uh, we're now looking at uh, logistics are bringing it from up country so uh, you know there's a lot of truck movements uh, Angus and uh, a lot of people that are obviously employed through this process from the trucking lines right through to those that have storage as well up country we've used small private stores as well to accumulate some grain in the farmers wanted to sell directly at harvest but uh, most of the grain is coming directly off the farm now uh, from out of all of those areas we've spoken about Obviously a big concern for farmers when marketing their grain is, is getting paid well and, and getting paid on time. Uh, how have you gone about securing those payment terms? Yeah, so look, uh, to do business the way that we wanted to do, and this is what's taken um, quite a long time to talk through with, uh, with Amman, is that they put the money up front and then we know we've got that secure capital to be able to buy the grain off the farmer. And that's the only way that we were ever intending to buy it, is to make sure that farmers get paid. I mean, after being an advocate for payment to farmers for a long time, and we've changed, obviously, through that process, the payment terms, uh, we've been paying farmers and also contractors where we can get the logistics of paperwork in place within five days of end of week. Uh, And we've, in some cases, paid a lot of people a lot quicker than that. So essentially you've been the one sourcing and paying for that grain on, on behalf of the Omanis? That is correct, yes. So it's us, we're sourcing the grain uh, and then paying the farmer for it uh, and then uh, the grain that is loaded onto the ship. What's the motivation, Andrew? I mean, you, you talked about provenance and, and creating better linkages between growers and, and those end users, but, I mean, at the end of the day, how do the dollars stack up in terms of what, what the farmer's getting paid going through this process compared to just dropping it off at the local bulk handler? Yeah, so look, Angus, what we're looking to do is obviously pay 
farmers with good storage for that storage. Uh, and that's the key here is to make sure that uh, those that have got good quality storage, got good quality systems in place, uh, information around, uh, you know, the growing of the grain and things will come in time uh, as we implement those. But it's really a, a starting point uh, now is to try and find those farmers uh, with, you know, excellent storage and there's been big investments uh, right throughout the Wimmera and Mallee from farmers and uh, collecting those things. But we really just want to pay them well for that storage uh, and uh, try and create a new pathway to market for them. And, uh, you know, a lot of farmers' meetings that I've been to, you know, in the advocacy space, uh, farmers have been asking about this for some time. Um, the feedback has just been amazing. Um, you know, there are a few detractors out there, like there are in in certain circles on, on different issues, but at the end of the day, the support that we've had has uh, just... It's actually been a lot more than I thought we would have seen. So is there a price premium now, or, or do you hope that will come as this develops? So, look, it really depends on the global market. When we set the pricing, Angus, uh, it's all been set against the global pricing benchmarks that are in place. So then it's a matter of looking down through the supply chain, looking where the costs are and where we can minimise those costs, and then obviously rewarding the farmers for that. So that's all been a part of the process and will be a part of the review that we'll do once the ship leaves Australia. Uh, and uh, we know what the final overall cost of charges will be. Has it been done before? I'm not aware that this direct sort of farmer-to-the-market end has been done before like this, Angus. Uh, certainly in containers, um, I've been involved in that for quite some time. We're not a bulk shipment, uh, but I think this is uh, the starting point, and, and uh, if it has been done, it's probably not been publicised as much as perhaps this. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the growers that have been involved to date, um, they've been paid, paid you know, fair market value for their grain and uh, have been keen to be involved right from the start. So I think from, from all ends, um, you know, we've tried our very best and uh, hopefully it's a success and, and hopefully it's a long-term relationship that, um, you know, we've developed here and, and certainly, you know, Victorian farmers and uh, Western Australian farmers eventually might really benefit from that end-to-end connection and developing their own systems on their own farms and a new supply chain pathway here um, developed in Australia. Is that not incredible, farmers organising their own boat, their own shipment of 35,000 tonnes of milling wheat to Oman? What do you think of that? You can send us a text 0467 822 That's Andrew Wiedemann, a farmer in Western Victoria and a director of LW Investments Australia, who together with Barry Large are now exporting their own grain that's being loaded today at the port of Geelong. Incredible to think about. I wonder what you make of it. Is that a good move by farmers to export their own or does it have unforeseen consequences for the industry? You can let us know on the text line 0467 842 722. And Mick at the Hell's Gate feedlot talked about how hot it was where he is. The coastal people are in now telling us how cool it is where you are and I'm here for that too. 20 degrees in the main street of Port Ferry at the moment, says one anonymous texter. The other says, hi Warwick, here at Lakes Entrance, 23 degrees, cloudy and had about a four mils of rain today. Mick, Lake's entrance, you're always welcome to text as well, as is Mick, to tell us how hot it is at the uh, at the Hell's Gate feedlot, because we're a wide and varied state, even if we are a small one in Victoria, aren't we? Let's talk, speaking of that wide and varied, let's talk all issues water for a few moments now, because the Murray-Darling Basin plan won't be delivered on time. Commitments to return water to the environment by June 2024 are coming up hundreds of gigalitres short. So what's next for Australia's largest river network? National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has been looking at this for Landline this weekend and can join us to talk about it now. Kath, 
How we've seen so much water through the basin over summer with huge floods and record-breaking floods in some areas. Some might assume rivers have had enough water in them now, uh, but it may not be the case. Well, you'd have to say, Warwick, if people have had their properties or businesses or homes flooded in the past year, they may well and truly think that. But technically or legally, there should almost be more water coming down the Murray Mouth at... um, as we head towards this deadline in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Now, for those who haven't been following at home, the plan was legislated in 2012. It came about basically because for decades there'd been too much water extracted from the rivers. We're talking about Australia's largest river network, home to millions of people, millions of businesses, um, the food and fibre bowl of the nation, as some might like to call it. And that plan set out these targets. One was that 2,750 gigalitres of water should be left in the rivers every year, an extra 2,750 gigalitres to stay in the rivers every year by June of next year uh, so that it can boost the environment. In addition to that, an extra 450 gigalitres of water, again for the environment, was committed. The idea was it would come from things called efficiency measures. And there's a couple of reasons, but so far we've only seen five gigalitres uh, committed towards that 450 target. So you can see pretty quickly that things are coming up short. And we've heard from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority this week um, that it doesn't expect the, the plan to be delivered in full and on time. So what happens next? Well, next week we're expecting a meeting of water ministers from the Basin States. Now, you've been covering this for a long time. You know that sometimes these can get pretty spicy. Um, Sometimes they can be a little bit dull, but this should be a good one because... We know that the new Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, is committed to seeing the water that was promised to the environment delivered. Uh, We've got a relatively new Labor government in South Australia. Um, The Labor government's been returned in Victoria. It has a policy of not seeing... um, water recovered towards that 450 target that does any harm to the communities or it has its way, its its criteria about how that water is recovered. It's concerned about buybacks. It certainly doesn't want to see the Commonwealth go back into the market and buy back water. And we've got New South Wales on the cusp of a state election. In fact, this water minister's meeting is just sneaking in before they go into caretaker mode in New South Wales. And I think the water buybacks will be part of the conversation because um, while we haven't seen a, a big commitment from about water buybacks in recent years, we know that Tanya Plibersek has got them on the table and this is something that has um, really pricked the attention of a lot of people throughout the basin. So I suppose then what does this leave uh, and where does this leave those who live and work in the basin? What do they think, I suppose, as we move towards this important meeting? Well, for every person you meet who says there needs to be more water recovered for the environment, you'll meet somebody who says there doesn't need to be, that there's enough water going down the the mouth of the river, that farmers have become much more efficient in the way that they're using the water, uh, that they've seen the impact of trading water out of their communities, the impact that that's having on family life, marriage breakups, mental health issues. Uh, We hear from one GP in northern Victoria as part of the story on Sunday, if people have a chance to watch it on Landline. Uh, It's a really interesting perspective to have a doctor weighing in 
on water policy based on what they see in, in their clinic every day. We also hear from traditional owners who say that the way that the rivers are being managed doesn't quite tie in with First Nations knowledge and that they think there are better ways to manage the river as well. One really interesting perspective, if you've got a sec, was I know that the, the news headlines are coming, but... Uh, we did hear from an irrigator at Griffith, a fellow by the name of Steve Barbon. He's had a rough trot the last couple of years. Wine grapes, the price has fallen out the bottom with them, what with China, um, COVID-19, and, and even just the wet couple of years. It's, it's making him really have a think about, you know, maybe the opportunity of having the federal government buy back his irrigating licence. Here's what he if had to say. If the government like, market at the moment is nine, the government came in tomorrow and said we're going to offer farmers $12,000 a meg for their water. Yes, absolutely. It'd be enticing for them to, to take that and just walk off the land. Then what happens to a place like Griffith? <sighs> Unfortunately, it, 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 it puts an impact on businesses. The whole community suffers. But what I'm growing has to give me a return as well. So no point growing the produce for free and having the water at that price and not thinking about you know, $12,000 a meg you know what, let's just go. It's just, it's just too hard. You know, one thing I'm concerned about in this area is mental health, especially in the industry that I'm in. Um, you know, there's farmers out there doing it really tough. That's Steve Barbin speaking there. We've got Kath Sullivan with us, our national reporter in Canberra. And, and Kath, I suppose just looking forward to the next minister's meeting on water. What day is that next week and when are you sort of expecting to hear more? So we understand the meeting will be held on Friday and it'll be held in Sydney in New South Wales. So um, I don't know if the, the location adds anything to the uh, speculation or um, of what might actually occur at that meeting, but uh, hopefully we'll hear from ministers following that meeting and, and get a sense of what does happen and what can happen um, in terms of returning that water. You know, I talked about the Murray-Darling Basin Authority saying the, the plan's not going to be met on time. It's probably worth pointing out that Andrew McConville, the CEO, has suggested it may take um, a decade beyond the June 2024 deadline to see some of the works completed in order to ensure that uh, the water can travel through the river um, and that these commitments can be met. So it's very complicated, Was I hope I haven't sent people... Um, That's all right. We can watch. We can watch Landline <laughs> on the weekend and learn a lot more. Kath, thanks for your time. A pleasure was. Kath Sullivan, our national reporter in Canberra, taking you through, and that story will be on Landline, which is on your television every Sunday, or you can catch up with it on ABC iView. Uh, we'll keep moving though on the country. Our news headlines is on the way, but before we get there, let's take you to Wodonga in northeast Victoria, where plant-based meat substitute company V2 Food will close its manufacturing facility in Wodonga. The company's told employees of the plans to close, but the timeline for that closure is still unknown. As we get into the details, it's important to note it's been a tough time for the burgeoning meat substitute sector or fake meat sector, as it's also known. It's just it's just an incredibly tough market, whether it's domestically or globally, and I think they've They've, they've found that out the hard way. A joint venture between the CSIRO's main sequence ventures and parent company of Hungry Jack's, Jack Cowers Competitive Foods Australia, 
V2 Foods was founded as a meat substitute company in 2019 to supply burger patties to Hungry Jacks and other plant-based products to major supermarkets. It quickly announced a $20 million plan for a Wodonga factory, which opened in December 2020 on a 55,000 square metre site, and the company touted that it would grow to need 40 to 50 workers. But now it has been revealed that V2 Foods will close its Wodonga plant. The ABC has been told there's only a remaining four workers on site who have been told that they will learn of the timeline to close the factory in the coming weeks. The ABC has made numerous attempts to contact V2 Foods to discuss the plan and the company has not responded. Protein market analyst Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net says the V2 Foods factory closure in Wodonga points to wider issues in the substitute meat category. It's not a great thing for the people of Wodonga to work in there or suppliers that are sending product in, but from the perspective of the, the, you know, the company itself and what they're producing, it's no surprise to see that you know the, the, the trading conditions are, are difficult for them. You know, they might be saying we've got good sales, but like we've seen with some of these other companies overseas that are reporting good sales volumes, when you look at their operating profit, that doesn't translate to profitable outcomes because they're often um, you know selling product for for less than what they're making it. Has it been a difficult period for the meat substitute segment of the market? Absolutely has been. If you get past the initial stage, and probably the most commonly referred to one, Warwick's the Beyond Meat because they're a listed company. So the initial few months after the listing, the share price rallied extraordinarily and there was all this hype around the growth in the sector and how much sales they're going to achieve and how they're going to you know, take wrestle this market share away from real meat. And if you look now five years down the track how they've performed, they certainly have seen growth in sales, but it hasn't translated into operating profit. Indeed, you know, the last three years, their operating profit's gone into the negative significantly. Their share price has gone down accordingly? Absolutely. If you look at from the outset of the the issue of the share price, currently they're down about 74% in value. But I spoke about that initial rally in price. If you take it from the peak of their share price, they're down 93% presently. What do you put that down to? This was a, a new product hitting supermarket shelves and, and in the case of V2, also going into one of the biggest uh, fast food chains in Australia as burgers at Hungry Jack's. What do you put it down to in terms of the, the difficulties faced by the biggest players in, in this industry? I, I think, in essence, they've missed their market completely. And, and also the cost structure of this product is still, it's a, it's a product that's competing with what you'd call commoditized meat, so ground meat, which is the low cost meat. So you're in a quite competitive market space and it's quite cost competitive. So you've got a product you're producing that isn't as good and it's more costly and it's and it's going to a market segment which people are cost sensitive. So, you know, to be able to make it a success, they've got to be cheaper than real meat um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's not a bad product for what it is, but it just doesn't cut it when it comes to being a real meat product. And the average punter that has a burger isn't fussed about having plant-based or, or real meat. They'd, they'd rather have something that's cheap and tastes good, and that's real meat. And if the data showed otherwise, I'd have a different opinion. That's Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net speaking there about the uh, future of the meat substitute industry. And actually, just 
uh, a few moments ago, we did get a, more of a statement from V2 Foods about their Wodonga site, and I'll read some of that to you. It says, overall, whilst it's sad to close any facility, this shift will strengthen our position and allow us to respond to opportunities in the future as the alt-protein landscape continues to evolve at speed. We're currently working with all affected employees to minimise the impact as much as possible, and we'll have a clearer picture as the transition plan is developed by our Wodonga team. Over the coming months, we will transition some operations to our other facilities, continue to work with research collaboration partners at their facilities and move to third-party sourcing where we have partners that are better suited than V2 owning the process. Whilst there will still be V2 employees in the region, we will eventually close the current facility. However, a date for this is yet to be confirmed. That's the end of that statement. Let's head straight to news headlines because I'm late for that. Courtney Howe has that for us this afternoon. G'day, Courtney. Good afternoon, Warwick. Victorians are sweltering in extreme heat today, with the temperature expected to reach the low 40s in parts of regional Victoria. Fire authorities are on high alert with an extreme fire danger risk warning issued for the central district. A total fire ban has also been declared in Victoria's central and north central districts. Laura Murray Water is urging Kerrang customers on town supply to stop using water outdoors. Poor water quality coming into the plant has slowed the treatment process, meaning it's taking longer to treat the water to Australian standards. The Water Authority says the longer treatment time is impacting its ability to meet demand. It says residents should not water the garden and turn off sprinklers so it can provide drinking water. Armed crime squad detectives have renewed their calls for the public's assistance to help solve a six-year-old mystery in Victoria's northeast. Kelvin Tennant was riding along the Myrtleford-Everton rail trail on the 18th of February 2017 when he was shot a number of times. The 72-year-old was found unconscious on the bike trail by two passing cyclists. He was taken to the Alfred Hospital with life-threatening injuries. A significant police investigation has so far failed to find those responsible and a 500000 reward remains on offer. Life Saving Victoria has issued an urgent safety warning to the public as the state grapples more drownings than usual this summer. Of the 37 fatal drownings in Victoria between July 2022 and February 15th this year, 20 have been since December 1st. That is five more deaths than the 10-year average for summer. Life Saving Victoria says it's essential people actively supervise children and ensure they're swimming at a patrolled location if visiting the coast. And a regional care leaver says more needs to be done to break down barriers to success in the education system. A program aimed at boosting university and TAFE enrolments among young people leaving out-of-home care has helped increase numbers from just 43 in 2015 to 670 last year. Head of the program, Deb Sabaris, says stereotypes have too long played a role in low tertiary enrolment. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Was And thanks for today and the week, Courtney. Great to have you here. Uh, Courtney Howe there uh, with regional news headlines. Uh, we're going to go to the Australian Dairy Conference shortly on the program, which has been going on this week in uh, in Hobart. You'll hear from two of the major dairy process- processes. We had Lino Saputo from Saputo on the program yesterday. You'll hear from Renee Dadunka from uh, Fonterra and Barry Irvin from Bega shortly on the program. But before any of that, Alana Cherney is with you, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology to take you through the full weather forecast on this very hot day in northern Victoria. Alana, how are you? Well, thanks. Yeah, it is a, a very hot day for much of Victoria. 
already hitting 39 degrees up in Mildura today and expecting temperatures to continue to climb in the north to above 40 degrees. And even in the south, um, temperatures generally expected to reach the high 30s during the day today. Um, with that, we do have um, a fire weather warning out for extreme fire danger through the central district, given those uh, hot temperatures as well as uh, gusty northerly winds ahead of a change coming through later today. And we do also have um, high fire dangers uh, for elsewhere for much of the state. So with that change coming through, it will bring some um, cooler southwesterly conditions uh, through to the state. So we've seen it move through um, just the, the far southwest, uh, starting to move through the Horsham area at the moment. Uh, we'll move through uh, places like Mildura and, and Charlton and Ballarat um, early this afternoon, um, then through uh, Bendigo and start to move into Gippsland later this evening and into tonight. And so temperatures cooling off uh, close to the coast, but they'll still remain pretty warm inland as that is quite a, a shallow change. We've also seen some storms ahead of the change, particularly through southern Victoria, and we may see a few more storms pop up through central and eastern Victoria today with that change. Uh, with the potential for damaging winds with those thunderstorms as well. And Alana, there were some concerns with that change coming through, particularly some of the hotter areas, about the risk of dry lightning. Is that still um, a possibility? Yeah, that certainly is still a possibility um, as we are looking um, like a, quite a, 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 a dry um, air with the potential for those storms. So um, still, there is still the potential for, for dry lightning, particularly through um, through central and eastern parts, although some of those showers and storms may have um, a little bit of, of rainfall with them. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And then beyond that, how's it looking? So tomorrow, Saturday, uh, we, we will see that change just continue to move through the far east of the state, so moving through um, the northeast, and there is the chance for some more thunderstorms in the far east for tomorrow, possibly severe in the far east with damaging winds or potentially large hail, but Really, for much of the state tomorrow, we'll have some more mild southwesterly conditions, uh, southwesterly winds, um, but still a, a little bit windy with um, those fresh southwesterlies and mostly dry for the state. Into Sunday and Monday, generally more settled conditions, uh, light um, southwest to southeasterly winds, uh, mild conditions in the south still remaining quite warm and dry inland. Uh, from Tuesday and into Wednesday, we may see um, uh, temperatures start to warm a little bit and some isolated showers and thunderstorms developing through eastern parts and starting to heat up again towards the end of next week. Brilliant. Uh, and, uh, and just with the weekend in mind too, Alana, sort of any ex expectations of, of warnings over the next couple of days apart from that sort of fire weather warning that you've got? Yeah, so aside from the fire weather warning, um, for today and tomorrow there is the chance of some severe thunderstorm warning. So today with damaging winds possible through much of central Victoria and tomorrow a possibility really just in, in the far east, um, in, in east Gippsland. Uh, those would be the, the main concerns for warnings over the next couple of days. Brilliant. I really appreciate the update. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Alana Cherney, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau with a full forecast there. Uh, a lot of your texts coming in. I'm loving the weather reports that are coming in, actually. Kevin says 34 degrees at Myrtleford was. Uh, northeast Victoria there for those playing at home. Bit of cloud and a bit of breeze. Kevin, 
Love it. Thank you for that. We've already got the uh, coastal ones, 20 degrees at Port Ferry and 23 at Lakes Entrance and 51 degrees on the bitumen near the Hell's Gate feedlot on the western edge of the Hay Plain as well from Mick. I'll still love that text too, Mick. Uh, plenty of texts coming in on other issues as well, just in terms of the farmers going it alone and exporting their own shipment of wheat. Was, wasn't there a single desk for wheat to benefit producers? Wasn't there dairy milk co-ops to benefit producers before big business got in to break them up? Now farmers are organising their own ship of wheat. How the wheel turns, says someone on the text line. Uh, and this one says, with the Murray-Darling water, why don't they just bite the bullet and bring tropical water down the Darling? Plenty of water then for everyone as well. You can keep your thoughts coming in if you'd like. 0467842722. We're going to go to the Australian Dairy Conference next. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's go to Tasmania now where hundreds of dairy farmers have been meeting at the Australian Dairy Conference. This is a big deal in the dairy industry, probably the largest conference of its kind for the industry, and it hasn't been held for some time. So I wonder how things are going as dairy farmers are coming back together. Meg Powell, who has been presenting programs for the Tasmanian Country Hour, can join you now uh, at the conference to tell us more. G'day, Meg. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? Oh, I'm good. What's it like around Hobart today? Oh, uh, look, the skies are a little grey, but it's pretty warm for Hobart anyway. Uh, nothing on Shepparton, I reckon, but a pretty good day and definitely a good energy in the air down here at Rest Point, uh, right on the water on the Derwent River. That's where the dairy farmers have been coming together? Yeah, there's about 600 people down here. Um, half of them, about half of them are dairy farmers. The other half are analysts and industry people. And they've been, um, there's been a phenomenal energy here, I'd say. They've been, um, there's a bit of, there's talks in the air of the future of the industry, where it's going, on the back of a really great year of prices. You know, maybe there's some nerves about what prices are going to do this coming season but there's also a sense of hope maybe if I can editorialise a little bit here. In terms of the the discussion I suppose so far at the conference what have you been hearing? Yeah so a lot of it has been around future planning so succession planning, business planning, what are we going to do to stop the industry from shrinking and I think um, the difference this year has been, as I said before, a bit of the hope. They even had a psychologist down here saying, you know what, you dairy farmers, too much negative talk. We need to talk about how we're going to move forward. Um, so that's be that succession planning, be that environmental issues and some really deeply personal stories down here, Warwick, which has been quite a crowd pleaser, I think, very touching um, to hear the struggles and stories of resilience ultimately. And what about, I suppose, the state of the industry itself? What are dairy farmers or or analysts saying about how the industry's going and what it's producing and and where that product's going? Yeah, well, uh, as we know, the supply is in decline, that is shrinking, but it's becoming more valuable at the same time. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. Uh, We are expecting in this coming year a lot more imports, which will be interesting for consumers. They'll be getting things maybe in places they don't expect, like on the top of pizzas, they might be getting foreign cheese instead of local cheese. Or um, uh, prices are looking like they're going to go up next year too for on the 
the retail side of things. Um, had a chat to some of the big bosses from um, Fonterra and Bega, uh, who say, well, who won't say what prices are going to do, what they're going to do with Farmgate prices next year, but that basically they're stuck between keeping the farmers happy, their own commercial interests, and of course pleasing the consumer because someone has to buy this stuff in the end. So. Um, Let's hear a little bit about what Renee Dodonka, Managing Director of Fonterra and Bega Cheese Executive Chairman Barry Irvin had to say. We made a move last week to 9.55 and uh, it's predicated on a really strong first half this year where we locked away a lot of our contracts for prices and it's meant that we've been able to move through the year with a really strong price this year. Uh, The winds are changing, you know, we're seeing... Prices move off GDT the last sort of few months. They've come off at least 20%. Barry, I think it might be 30% since last year, this time last year. So we're now having to assess all of the moving forces as we start to pull together the the maths about what next season looks like. Barry, same question. Is that sustainable? So so I think, look, I agree with Renee's comment. And I think really farmers have been used to the fact that that there are a number of factors that lead into how you come up with a milk price each year. and, uh, And... at the moment, what we've seen is very uh, strong lifts in price in the, in the domestic Australian retail market, which, which will be more stable, but we've also seen that very large drop in global commodity prices. And I think when we look at this time last year, we were seeing those record high prices being driven by a very, very strong and fast raising, rising global commodity market. That's now not the case, and it's, it's, it's corrected fairly substantially. Uh, too early to tell in terms of what next year looks like, but I think that the truth is that we're always very conscious of saying, what's, what's the strongest price we can get to farmers while still making sure that we've got a processing industry that is investing for the future and, and indeed investing in the customer as well as its infrastructure to ensure the longevity. And, and that means that you can never ignore the market. And Barry, can I just add that I think last night we talked about margin rather than just price, mm. right? You know, we've got to make a buck, a farmer's mm. got to make a buck, and someone out there's still got to pick up and love our product, right, a mm. consumer. So the equation has to deal with all of those as we set prices. Mm. Now, can you give us a hint at least to what prices will do in the next season? Are they going to be higher, lower? Really difficult one, Meg. Um, if we had that, that sort of crystal ball, uh, we'd be talking to our farmers about it first, and they, they will hear about it over the next few months. But we are doing the math, right, mm. like, like Barry said. This is about um, not just one year, it's about multiple years, consecutive years of us all being able to prosper. So no, I don't have a price to share with you, but what we are focused on is making sure it works for our farmers, works for us, and works for the consumer. I think I'd endorse Renee's comments, I think. What will it take for Australian dairy to stop shrinking and start growing? We'll start with you, Barry. Look, it's interesting. There's a number of factors, and and, and look, I would make... uh, the observation that that as I move around the industry, and I've been in the industry a very long time, and we've talked about it a little today. So while we might look at the Australian dairy industry and say, oh, it is shrinking, I think the thing that is notable for me is that where there's successful succession and where you've got young people in the industry or successful family succession, you're actually seeing growth. It's just that that growth is not 
uh, keeping pace with with some of the exits which tend to be retirees and those those exits I think there's a couple of factors one is that succession factor where people are starting to say you know what I'm 55 or 60 or older I don't have anybody coming through my land is worth a very large amount a historically high amount of money land is trading very quickly and even my alternatives around beef uh, are quite attractive, particularly in an environment where labour is so difficult uh, to acquire. So, so what you're seeing is um, uh, a, bi a bit of a two-speed industry, if you like, where, where there are those that are investment and confident and got a runway in front of them and are really happy to grow, but you've also got a, a level of succession or even fatigue in terms of you know the issue the issues of the dairy industry over the last decade are well enough known without me revisiting them, but you know people have lost a little bit of confidence and therefore they haven't been building a succession plan in. So I think one of the things that will be really important around growth is is, is even new pathways into agriculture, onto farms to grow. I think, you know, interestingly, the correction that we're seeing in the beef industry actually helps the dairy industry a little as well. So I think there's a number of factors that will that will see the industry first stabilise and then grow. So I think, you know, we'd be happy to see a bit of stability in, in, in the short term and growth in the longer term. Renee, do you think there will be further consolidation in the Australian dairy industry? Look, I, I think there's still too much stainless steel. Uh, we, we've been playing an active role in, in trying to get the balance right and I still think that that needs to happen to a further extent. I think there's still more consolidation to come. Renee, Fonterra recently decided to ban the culling of very young calves in New Zealand. Will that need to happen in Australia? Look, there's a what, what a subject, right? And, and in New Zealand, some of the conditions are just a little bit different. We are working with industry here to make sure that we look after non-replacement calves in a way that's humane. And we've got a lot of programs that we've got in place, but we will do this with the industry and we will line up with ADF and Dairy Australia and we will have one voice. So we're working on it. There's a whole lot of energy going in there. It, it, it is a great subject and I think we all want to do the right thing. What we will do is come up with a plan that works for this market and we'll implement it when we've got time and whenever all the settings are correct. Is the social pressure mounting in that space? I, I actually think that as an industry, we want to be able to be as transparent as possible. So, you know, as we think about the future, we'll think about the fact that people will want to watch a dairy cow being milked, watch a calf being raised, whatever else. And so, so therefore, issues like animal welfare will, will only grow. So that's Renee Dodonka from Fonterra and Barry Irvin from Bega Cheese talking a little bit about the, the state of the industry and maybe your future milk price there on the program. They were speaking to Meg Powell on the Tasmanian Country Hour. Meg's still with us. Meg, are there many soy lattes allowed at a dairy conference or is there a lot oh. of dairy products around you today? Not a drop of soy. Not a, today's focus is more along the environmental side, which should be quite fascinating and important for a lot of farmers. So managing uh, things like methane emissions and working out how the, the industry can remain sustainable. Well, Meg Powell, thanks for taking us to Tasmania today and to the Australian Dairy Conference, and good luck with the rest of it. Thanks, Warwick. See you later. Uh, it's Meg Powell there uh, who has been presenting the Tasmanian Country Hour from the Australian Dairy Conference in Hobart. Sounds a bit of fun uh, to, to be at, but some interesting industry discussions too happening at the same time. You know, let us know what you think. You've now heard from the three major dairy processors 
in Australia on this program in the last two days. Uh, do you like what you're hearing? Do you think there are some warnings there that are coming to you, particularly on price for next season, or is the competition going to keep the price high for you? We'd love your thoughts if you're a dairy farmer. Remember, you can always text us during this program, but you can email us as well. The text line is 0467 842 722. The, the email is countryhour, or one word, at ABC. .net.au. Some more weather reports coming in for you at Daysdale, just over the border in southern New South Wales. Kylie says 35 degrees at the moment with little rain in sight. Too right, Kylie. Thank you for that. And Stephen says, was our stinker was yesterday. Max temperature, 40.8 degrees. It was still 34.3 degrees at 11pm last night. Got to a low of 21.6 this morning at 6am. And it's 29.3 degrees at the moment. And I'm enjoying the cool change, says Stephen at Yarrick, which is near the Vic South Australia border, Caniva country, I suppose you'd say for that, wouldn't you, Stephen? But uh, great text. I hope you got the jumper handy at only 29 degrees after yesterday's effort, Stephen. You can keep those texts coming. Loving the weather reports coming in today, actually. Not often I ever ask for the degrees. Usually we're asking for millimetres, aren't we? So, hey, we'll, we'll take the degrees as well on the program today. It's great to have your feedback coming in for the program. Uh, speaking of feedback, well, uh, some feedback and new information is going out to labour hire providers who now need to make sure that any accommodation they provide for workers is registered with the local council and that it meets standards under the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. Labor Hire Licensing Commissioner Steve Dargavel says that the requirements came into effect earlier this week. The government has amended the Public Health and Wellbeing Regulations to make it clear that labor hire providers and people supplying accommodation to labor hire workers are covered by the Health and Wellbeing regulations that would normally apply to accommodation so, so as to ensure that we don't have overcrowding and you know we have basic cleanliness and that kind of thing. So these changes came into effect on the 15th of February. What are labour hire providers with accommodation now required to do that they weren't doing previously? Labour hire providers were already required as a condition of their licence to comply with the health and wellbeing standards and what these amendments do is put that absolutely beyond doubt to ensure that there's no confusion that labour hire providers must ensure that if they're organising accommodation for workers that it's reasonable, reasonable sort of accommodation, that it's not overcrowded and it's not unhygienic. Is this an issue that you've come across previously? Yes, it's been a, 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 an issue in, not only in... Um, horticulture, it's been certainly an issue in um, in the region, in Mildura, um, and you know, the authority has investigated and held to book some providers that have been providing um, substandard labour uh, accommodation. That's been a bit of a turn-off for workers, and you know, it's important that the industry is supported by um, workers who, who are supported with good accommodation so that they come back to, to the region and um, support the industry and are treated well. So it's certainly been an issue that's um, been talked about a fair bit about in the community and the government simply supporting expectations that workers get um, basic standards like we would all expect. How confident are you that approved labour hire operators are aware of this change that's come into play this week? It won't come as any surprise. We've um, written to labour hire providers, uh, putting them on notice. It's it's already a condition of their licence. So anyone who's been licensed by the authority will know it's a condition of their licence. Um, 
We have talked regularly about it in our electronic bulletins to labour hire providers that we send out monthly. Um, the important thing I, I guess I'd ask your listeners to consider is if you're aware of um, bad accommodation that is um, being provided to labour hire workers, if you just go to the Labour Hire Authority's website and um, if you can log that concern with us, then we can follow up and um, make sure that labour hire workers are being supported um, with fair accommodation. Our website is labourhireauthority.vic.gov.au and you can hop on there and, and log a concern on the website um, to let us know about any concerns that might, might exist. And for licensed labour hire providers who don't make these changes, so register the property with the local council, um, meet their cleanliness, hygiene, maintenance and other standards according to that um, public health and wellbeing regulation, is it possible that they will lose their accreditation if, if they're not doing the right thing? There's a range of options. Um, it depends on how bad it is, but um, certainly the authority has taken action in the past in relation to accommodation matters. Uh, in one case, the uh, labour hire provider agreed to clean up the problems and to refund the uh, deductions they had taken from the workers' pay for the accommodation. You're only permitted to deduct uh, reasonable amounts for accommodation out of pay. You can't over-deduct and you certainly can't deduct if the accommodation doesn't meet uh, standards. So uh, there's a range of options and certainly that, that can include cancelling a provider's licence and um, meaning that they can't uh, conduct labour hire services anymore. But there are other uh, options available to us such as introducing uh, conditions and they can also, uh, the Department of Health and the Council can also take action um, depending upon the circumstances. That's Labor Hire Licensing Commissioner Steve Dargavel speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's about all the time we have for you on the program. Just before we go, though, I did want to give you an update on a story that we had in our rural, rural news earlier in the week. Some major corporations and big agricultural companies are coming together to put big dollars up to see agricultural training return to outback Queensland. They've decided to put in a bid to take over the site of the former Longreach Pastoral College, which uh, closed in January 2019, and uh, to take it over and start running it again to train their future staff. Here's a little bit of the action from that meeting and some of the plans uh, that have come out of it. Nine major corporations and businesses have committed to fund and reinstate agricultural training at the former Longreach Pastoral College as part of a consortium bid for the state-owned facility, which closed in 2019. AAM Investment Group announced its intention to submit a tender for the training hub last week, but only revealed details of the parties involved at a community meeting in Longreach last night. It includes Australian Country Choice, Cleveland Ag, CPC, the Kerr family, Georgina Pastoral, McDonald Holdings, Morton Co and Napco. AAM's Managing Director Gary Edwards told the meeting the bid recognises the shared need for training and education in the industry. This is the point where everyone gets to put up or shut up. So if you want to start something, uh, you go to people that are like-minded and actually want to do something. We are saying that we are prepared to put our money where our mouth is and seek to secure this asset because it's a crying shame to see something sit there and do nothing. But we're going to look to partner with at least one, maybe more, training organisation to deliver other services out there. 
because all of those companies up there are not in the education business. We're in the need of education, but we're not in the education business. Simply what we're doing is pooling our resources to try and secure, redevelop and reopen. So it's just fascinating to see. You can read more about that online at abc.net.au slash rural. Uh, but basically private companies coming together to buy an education institution that have been shut and to basically reopen it to train their next generation of workers. It'll be one to follow through to see if it works. A couple more uh, temperature checks with you just before we finish the country. Our 35 degrees, says Rob at Chilton and not a cloud about. And Jill says it's hot and windy, 36 degrees at Tainong North as well. Thank you to all of you for your weather reports today on the Country Hour. I hope you've had a great week and we'll be back with you on the Country Hour next week to do it all again. I hope you can join us then. Have a great afternoon.